Welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, a podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. My name is Peter Park, a third-year PM&R resident at Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm Margaret Beckwith, a fourth-year PM&R resident, also at Washington University in St. Louis. Today, we bring you an episode on spine interventions, a very popular topic among PM&R residents. Our goal is to provide a high-yield and audible study aid. We hope that you find the content educational and worth your while. Quick disclaimer, the AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the host and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Content for the series is based off of current PM&R learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. Okay, Margaret, let's dive into our first case study. Case number one. Our first case involves a 60-year-old male patient with no significant past medical history who has been experiencing gradually worsening low back pain radiating down the side of his left leg for the past seven months. He describes the pain as constant and sharp, localized to his lower back with intermittent shooting sensation down the side of his left leg. He also reports some numbness on the anterolateral aspect of his lower right leg. He denies any other associated symptoms. He has been taking acetaminophen and gabapentin regularly that was prescribed by his PCP. He has completed two separate courses of physical therapy focusing on lower back pain, but there has been minimal improvement in his symptoms. He presents to clinic asking what to do next. So Margaret, what is your assessment of this patient at this point? This is a very interesting and common case that we have here, Pete. Sounds like we have an older gentleman with worsening symptoms of radicular lower back pain in the absence of a known inciting event. With any low back pain, we should always rule out any red flag symptoms that could point to a problem being an emergent one, such as bowel or bladder dysfunction, which could indicate cauda equina syndrome, fevers or chills, which could indicate a possible infectious etiology, gait ataxia, or upper motor neuron changes, which may suggest myelopathy, or worsening pain at night with constitutional symptoms such as weight loss, which could be a sign of malignancy. Fortunately, it doesn't sound like he has any of these. And given the gradual tempo of his condition over the last seven months, a chronic degenerative problem is most likely the etiology of his pain. With this as most likely diagnosis, and considering he has already tried conservative management with common medications, he's tried two rounds of physical therapy, I think it is very reasonable to offer this patient an elective procedure to improve his symptoms and function. Wow, that is a fabulous summary. So then what are some procedures that we can offer him? One of the most common procedures we do as physiatrists for treatment of radicular symptoms is an epidural steroid injection. But before we go ahead and offer this patient, we should finish taking a thorough history and do a physical exam to, again, rule out any of the aforementioned red flag symptoms. We should also get imaging studies to ascertain exactly what we are dealing with. So I'm curious to know some of the pertinent findings on his physical exam and imaging studies. Could you share those, Pete? Not a problem. His physical exam was notable for normal range of motion with back flexion, extension, and rotation, but he did have radicular pain with straight leg raise at around 10 degrees on the left side. His strength was also normal, except for a slightly weaker 4 out of 5 strength with left ankle dorsiflexion. 
he had normal sensation to light touch in both of his lower extremities. His L-spine MRI was most significant for moderate to severe left neuroforaminal stenosis at the L4, L5 level. Not so wonderful for this patient, but wonderful that we have so much data which with we can work with and help him. With his physical exam and MRI corroborating his symptoms consistent with an L4, L5 lumbar radiculopathy, an epidural steroid injection is certainly indicated at this point. All righty. Let's talk about epidural steroid injection and the various approaches. But first, since radiation is involved with these procedures, would you be willing to highlight some of the important factors regarding radiation safety? Absolutely. Whenever x-ray is being used in a procedure, one must recognize that this is a form of ionizing radiation that can lead to adverse long-term effects with cumulative exposure, such as cancer, radiation burns, and cataract formation. The issue of radiation safety tends to be undermined in many clinical settings, so it is really paramount that we do as much as possible to protect ourselves down the road, especially since we there's no really known limit, lower limit of um, safe radiation dose as any amount of radiation can have long-term detrimental effects. In order to minimize radiation exposure, there are three important factors we need to keep in mind, and these include time, distance, and protection. In regards to time, limiting the radiation exposure using pulsed rather than the live or continuous mode of x-ray is highly recommended. So we need to keep in mind that radiation comes not only in the path between the source and the intensifier, but also from the scattering of the beam around the room. Regarding distance, the distance between the x-ray source and the interventionalist should be maximized whenever possible. This is based on the inverse square law, which states that As the distance from the source increases, the radiation intensity decreases by a square factor of that distance. Additionally, the x-ray source should be as far away from the patient as possible with the x-ray image intensifier as close as possible to the patient. And this can help minimize scatter radiation and to ensure that the dose of radiation per unit area on the patient is small. And last but not least, it is crucial to wear a lead apron and thyroid shield at all times. It is also not a bad idea to wear lead glasses as well. A dosimeter should be worn to monitor accumulated radiation exposure. It is easy to be cavalier about radiation safety since there's no short-term tangible consequences that we can appreciate, but we should be mindful of these factors anytime we're near a radiation source. And for a physiatrist who may be pregnant, in addition to wearing the dosimeter on your collar outside of your lead apron, You'll also wear one at waist level under your lead apron. Your occupational radiation exposure limit will be less than the normal occupational limit. Very good to know. Safety first should always be the motto, so thanks for going over these in detail, and hopefully we have emphasized its importance. Now then, can you go over the many types of local anesthetic and steroids that are used in these injections? More than happy to. Notable local anesthetics that are commonly used include lidocaine, which is widely available and has a median dose duration lasting up to four to six hours. Then there are bupivacaine and ropivacaine, which are longer lasting than lidocaine, and their duration of action is typically reported to be around eight to 10 hours. And each medication has a recommended max dose that we can use to avoid adverse reactions. And like the local anesthetics, corticosteroids also come in various forms. 
The corticosteroids are purported to cause direct inhibition of the C-fibers, which are responsible for our apparent pain signals. And they also induce phospholipase A2 synthesis, which by doing so, we're preventing the production of prostaglandins, which are responsible for pain and inflammation. Corticosteroids can be divided into glucocorticoids, which have an important role in inflammation, and mineral corticoids, which have an important role in regulation of our salt and water. Intuitively, though, the glucocorticoids are the main type of corticosteroids that we use for injection as they're implicated in the process of reducing inflammation, and they also have mineral corticoid activity. Glucocorticoids can also be divided into two categories, particulate and non-particulate steroids. The particulate steroids, such as methylprednisolone, triamcinolone, and betamethasone, are non-water soluble, and thus they are reported to have a longer duration of action through their local depot effect. However, non-particulate steroids, such as dexamethasone, are now recommended due to reports of complications from particulate steroids, such as spinal cord infarct from embolization of the particulate steroid in the vasculature. Research on efficacy between particulate versus non-particulate steroids has been largely inconclusive. Great. Now let's get back to our case details and talk about the injection itself and the various approaches. Since our patient's symptoms are unilateral, it is reasonable to attempt a unilateral, in this case, left transferamidal epidural steroid injection, which may target the spinal nerve root more specifically than some of the other approaches. And when we're doing a transferaminal injection, we are going to do this with the patient in the prone position, and the spinal needle is guided using the help of the with the help of fluoroscopy. The final images are taken in the ipsilateral oblique view, with which you should have the classic Scotty dog image. So let's see if we can try to picture this together on the podcast. So the nose of the dog is the transverse process. The ear is the superior articular process, and the front leg is the inferior articular process. This view provides the safe triangle view with the superior border of the safe triangle being the horizontal line parallel to the inferior border of the pedicle, lateral border of the safe triangle being the lateral edge of the vertebral body, and the hypotenuse of the safe triangle is represented by the diagonal spinal nerve root. Your target should be inferior to the eye of the Scotty dog, which can also be defined as infrapedicular or supraneural areas. Contrast can then be injected to confirm correct needle placement and reveal what we call like a nice epidural spread pattern or flow. There shouldn't be any signs of vascular flow. And after this is confirmed, the steroid is injected and the needle is withdrawn from the patient. An alternative visual target to the safe triangle view is the Cambin's triangle, which is an infraneural approach that has been proposed in some literature in order to avoid encountering the radicular artery in the supraneural region. But the risk is still not zero with the Cambin approach, as it can cause other complications such as intradiscal injection. So regardless of which target is used, it's a good idea to utilize multiple views to verify the position of the needle for maximum safety. And these are just a couple of approaches and one type of injection out of many. So Pete, why don't you briefly tell our listeners about the other approaches of epidural steroid injections, as well as some of the other procedures we typically encounter? Sure thing. 
Another approach for the epidural steroid injection is the interlaminar with a paramedian approach. For this one, the patient's prone, and rather than using an oblique view, the AP view is utilized to go directly down to the epidural space, going through several layers with a tool called the loss of resistance syringe. The layers we encounter from superficial to deep are the supraspinous ligament, the infraspinous ligament, and ligamentum flavum. Once you're past the ligamentum flavum, as indicated by the loss you would feel on the syringe due to the loss in pressure, contrast is injected to confirm the correct needle placement prior to the injection of the steroid. Caudal approach can also be used for lower lumbosacral radiculopathy, where the needle is directed through the sacral hiatus and the injectate is injected cephalad to diffuse the medication into this region. Careful attention should be paid to not advance the needle higher than the S3 level, as the dural sac typically ends at the S2 level. And Pete, what's the concern with getting too close to the dural sac? That is a great question, and this is as good a spot as any to talk about some complications with spinal injections. Regardless of level of entry into the spine, dural puncture can occur if the needle violates the dural sac. Its incidence is reported to be less than 0.5%, but it could lead to complications such as post-dural puncture headache. Infection is also a concern with any procedure, so maintaining sterility is crucial to avoid this complication. The use of local anesthetics is not without possible adverse reactions either, as it can lead to local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Early signs include perioral or tongue paresthesias, dizziness, and orthostasis. Late signs are more severe and can present with muscle twitching, drowsiness, respiratory depression, arrhythmia, seizures, and cardiac arrest. Neurological complications include paralysis secondary to epidural hematoma, direct nerve damage, or embolization of a non-particulate steroid that you mentioned earlier, Margaret. Seizures are also a possibility which can be managed by securing the airway, providing oxygenation, and administering benzodiazepine if indicated. Speaking of securing the airway, it's always a good idea to have a protocol for a rapid response team to perform advanced cardiac life support in case of anaphylactic reactions, seizures, or any other life-threatening emergencies. Thanks for the great summary of common and serious complications. It's always important that we be aware of them as interventionalists and also to inform the patients prior to obtaining their, their consent for the procedures. Going back to the patient now, if we determine that the etiology of the patient's pain was different based on our history and physical and you know perhaps other studies, what are some other commonly performed procedures that could be considered? Sacroiliac joint pain is a common complaint in physiatry. A procedure to help with symptoms of SI joint pain is an intraarticular SI joint injection. It can be beneficial to perform a diagnostic injection first with a local anesthetic to either rule out or rule in a true intraarticular SI joint pain before proceeding with the therapeutic injection, which includes steroids for a longer lasting relief. Another scenario in which diagnostic technique is used followed by therapeutic intervention is radiofrequency ablation in setting of cervical, thoracic, lumbar facet arthropathy, or facetogenic pain. 
This is classically diagnosed if patients have pain that is exacerbated by what we call facet loading with back extension and rotation. X-ray, CT, or MRI can corroborate these symptoms on which you see a combination of hypertrophy at the facet joint, along with joint space narrowing, calcification of the capsule, joint effusion, or a vacuum phenomenon, which is due to intraarticular gas. Facet joints are innervated by medial branch nerves, so these can be targets for diagnostic blocks with local anesthetics only. Typically, if a patient has a greater than 80% relief for the duration of the local anesthetic for a series of two diagnostic blocks, this is called a positive response, and a radiofrequency ablation of these nerves can be pursued for longer-lasting pain relief. Great. Thanks for summarizing, Pete. That was a lot of wonderful pearls, so let's go over some of the key takeaway points for our audience from this case. Pearl number one, always rule out the red flag symptoms when assessing a patient for low back pain, such as bowel or bladder incontinence, fever and chills, night pain and weight loss, ataxia, or upper motor neuron signs. Pearl number two, when using fluoroscopy, Proper protective equipment should be worn at all times, and the C-arm should be oriented optimally to minimize exposure to ionizing radiation. Pearl number three. Local anesthetics have varying duration of action. It is shorter with lidocaine and longer with bupivacaine or or ropivacaine. Pearl number four. Corticosteroids are divided into glucocorticoids and mineral corticoids. Glucocorticoids are commonly used for spine injections due to the role in inhibition of pain and inflammation. Pearl number five. Glucocorticoids are further divided into particulate and non-particulate steroids based on their water solubility. And non-particulate steroids such as dexamethasone are generally recommended to minimize possible embolization and infarction. Pearl number six. Epidural injections can be done using the transferaminal approach via supraneural or infraneural approaches, interlaminar or caudal approaches. Pearl number seven. Complications from spine injections include postural puncture headache, infection, local anesthetic systemic toxicity, epidural hematoma, or seizures. And pearl number eight. Other commonly used interventions in the spine include sacroiliac joint injections and diagnostic medial branch blocks, followed by radiofrequency ablation. Hopefully that was a lot of learning gains for all our listeners. And now without further ado, let's move on to case number two. For this case, our patient is a 35-year-old female with a history of left forearm fracture after a fall, and she required an open reduction and internal fixation of her radius and ulna approximately one year ago. Since then, unfortunately, she has had persistent burning and stabbing sensations in her entire left arm and hand that prevent her from using it for most of the day. Even at rest, she has trouble putting on her clothes or showering because the pain is so severe. She also states that her left forearm and hand look bigger and sometimes they appear more blue. She reports weakness of the left hand when she grips things, as well as decreased range of motion of her wrist. She apparently had some block in the neck for this left upper extremity pain on three different occasions, but states that the benefit only lasted a few days each time and her pain has really not improved since its onset. She has tried many different medications, including gabapentin, pregabalin, 
amitriptyline, and opioids with really no success. Pete, what do you suspect is going on here? This persistent and disproportionate neuropathic pain with the associated changes following a traumatic event and a surgical operation is consistent with complex regional pain syndrome, otherwise known as CRPS. Presuming that the physical exam is consistent with her sensory, vasomotor, and pseudomotor complaints, she pretty much checks all the boxes for the Budapest criteria, which is the gold standard criteria we use for diagnosing CRPS. So we can be very confident that CRPS is our working diagnosis. These block procedures that she mentioned for CRPS in the upper extremity were most likely a series of stellate ganglion blocks. And in CRPS, the pain is deemed to be sympathetically mediated due to the dysfunction of the nervous system. So the goal of this block is to provide sympathetic blockade to the stellate ganglion, which can attenuate the sympathetic output to the face, the neck, and the upper extremities. This results in symptomatic improvement of the neuropathic pain that the patients experience. Very thorough analysis, Pete. Most of the procedures that we have talked about thus far have used fluoroscopy as our image-guided modality. Do we use fluoroscopy for these stellate ganglion blocks? We certainly could, but since the stellate ganglion is comprised of the lower cervical sympathetic and upper thoracic ganglia anterolateral to the C7 vertebral body, a lot of important structures get in the way of a sympathetic blockade using a needle. Therefore, using an ultrasound is typically recommended not only to precisely target and visualize the stellate, but also to avoid the arteries, veins that are encountered in close proximity to our target. The landmark we use for stellate ganglion block is known as the Chassaignac tubercle, which is the anterior aspect of the C6 transverse process, as this is the area adjacent to where the stellate ganglion is located. A bonus discussion point is that if a patient has symptoms of CRPS in their lower extremity, a lumbar sympathetic block can be done in a similar fashion by targeting the lumbar sympathetic ganglion near the anterior vertebral body of L3. Wow, this is really fascinating. Besides the stellate ganglion and the lumbar sympathetic chain, are there any other structures that are less commonly blocked for certain pain symptoms but worth noting? There sure are, Margaret. In cases of pancreatic cancer, celiac plexus can also be offered to be blocked to control pain arising from the epigastric viscera. It targets the sympathetic fibers from the greater, the lesser, and the least splanchnic nerves, as well as the parasympathetic fibers from the vagus nerve. This is a fairly risky procedure that can cause complications such as pneumothorax, infection, intercostal neuritis, or damage to major intra-abdominal organs. For pain in the pelvic region, secondary to gynecologic, colorectal, or GU cancer, the superior hypogastric plexus can be a target of a block located at the lower thirds of the anterolateral vertebral body of L5 on both sides. Excellent. So one advantage of fluoroscopy is that we can use contrast to confirm the proper location of the needle prior to injecting the medication. If a stellate ganglion block is performed under ultrasound, is there a way that we can confirm the procedure was performed correctly? Great question. 
an expected but benign side effect that we can expect following a stellate ganglion block is ipsilateral Horner syndrome, which is characterized by ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. Enophthalmus may also be observed with this procedure. Horner syndrome is a manifestation of the uninhibited parasympathetic supply of the eyes. Since we took away the sympathetic innervation with the block, but it's important to note that this is transient and it's a sign of a successful stellate ganglion block. So we can be reassured that we're in the right spot. Super. So it does turn out that our patient has had three different stellate ganglion blocks, but her life is still severely impacted by this pain despite medication and appropriate therapy. What is another intervention we could potentially consider for her situation? Oh, poor lady. But considering her persistent debilitating CRPS symptoms, despite multiple stellate ganglion blocks, the next intervention we could offer is a spinal cord stimulator. Traditional spinal cord stimulation takes advantage of the gate control theory of pain proposed by Melzack and Wall, which postulates that a non-painful stimulus can override a sensation of a painful stimulus. That is, when the theoretical gate is open, there is transmission of pain signals that reach the brain, while if the gate is closed, the transmission of pain signals is reduced. Spinal cord stimulation produces neuromodulation by sending afferent electrical signals up the spinal cord that are not painful. That's really neat, Pete. Can you tell our listeners about the FDA-approved indications for spinal cord stimulators? Sure can. Most common indication is failed back surgery syndrome. Both CRPS type 1 and 2 are also listed as an indication by the FDA. Others include intractable low back pain and leg pain, radicular pain syndrome, arachnoiditis, and degenerative disc disease. Now, can you walk us through the steps of a spinal cord stimulator? Absolutely. So spinal cord stimulation involves a trial followed by a permanent placement if that trial is successful. During the trial part, the electrical leads are threaded percutaneously with fluoroscopic guidance. The patient remains awake throughout the whole procedure to continually communicate with not only the interventionalist, but also the spinal cord rep so that the leads can be placed precisely at the level of the spinal cord that is able to cover the area of pain. The entry point of the lead should be at least two spine segments below the target level, such that at least three inches of the lead body lies within the epidural space, which increases the stability of the electrodes. Access into the epidural space is done similarly to the interlaminar epidural injection that we just discussed earlier using the loss of resistance syringe. The implantable pulse generator, known as the IPG, remains outside of the body during the trial. Once the trial has been determined to be successful for around five to seven days, usually defined as a reduction of pain by 50%, a permanent spinal cord stimulator can be implanted. The trial leads are replaced by sterile permanent leads and Everything is sutured closed to minimize migration or movement. The IPG is also implanted subcutaneously in the buttock or at the waist. Phenomenal. Thanks for yet another highly educational case with plenty of learning points. Let's recap some of the take-home pearls one last time. Sounds great to me. Pearl number one. Complex regional pain syndrome can be divided into two major categories, 
CRPS type 1, which is idiopathic, and CRPS type 2, which is due to a known nerve injury. Both are diagnosed using the Budapest criteria. Pearl number two. CRPS of the upper extremities can be treated using a stellate ganglion sympathetic block, and CRPS of the lower extremities can be treated using a lumbar sympathetic block. Pearl number three. Horner syndrome, a triad of ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, is an expected and transient phenomenon after a successful sympathetic block, most notably the stellate ganglion block, and this is due to uninhibited parasympathetic input. Pearl number four. Sympathetic blocks can also be used to target other ganglia for various indications, such as a celiac plexus blocks for pancreatic cancer pain or a superior hypogastric plexus block for pelvic pain. Pearl number five. Spinal cord stimulation is indicated for various chronic painful conditions, including failed back surgery syndrome, CRPS, radiculopathy, or other intractable pain syndromes. Pearl number six. Spinal cord stimulation is completed in two stages, the trial followed by a permanent placement of the leads and IPG if the trial is successful. This marks the end of today's episode. We hope you enjoyed our content and we thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As we're in the middle of residency application season, we wish all the medical students the best luck as they all try to match into the best specialty there is in medicine. Thank you, Dr. Decker and Dr. Sikochoff from Washington University in St. Louis for reviewing the script for accuracy. 